Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to our Midweek Bible Study 2022 Fall Edition. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and what a thrill it is to be with you today on this first Wednesday of October, October 5th. We're continuing in our study of 2 Corinthians, and the topic for today is Ministers of the New Covenant. Well, what exactly does that mean? And who are the ministers of the New Covenant? We'll talk about that and a whole lot more in just a moment. But right now, join me with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for this privilege once again to come and gather in your name to study your word. Lord, I thank you for all that have come, and I ask you to open our hearts and minds to receive the truths you have today in these verses for us. We thank you for your amazing love. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Well, today we're going to start by talking about how Paul was so plagued with concern over Titus' welfare and the status of the Corinthian church that he passed over a definite opportunity to preach the gospel in Troas. Now, I don't think many missionaries would write that kind of a report to their supporters, do you? Definitely not a good look. Then we'll talk more about the opposition, conflict, and distress Paul faced at every turn. And we'll finish with Paul's burst of heartfelt praise. The whole point is that the clear emphasis of 2 Corinthians is God's ability to transform suffering and weakness into victory for the gospel. That's a whole lot for us to talk about today, so let's get to it. The text for today is 2 Corinthians, starting with chapter 2, verse 12, to the end of the chapter, which is verse 17, and we'll cross over into 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. So get those Bibles or Bible apps open, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting with verse 12, and follow along as I read. When I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me. But I had no peace of mind because my dear brother Titus had not yet arrived with a report from you. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia to find him. But thank God, he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? You see, we are not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority knowing that God is watching us. And now 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 6. Are we beginning to praise ourselves again? Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on their behalf? Surely not. The only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of His new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. Amen and amen. 
All right, let's dive in. Right off the bat, number one, verses 12 and 13. Let's go back and reread them with me. When I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me. But I had no peace of mind because my dear brother Titus hadn't yet arrived with a report from you. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia to find him. So the question is, in these verses, the Lord opened a door for Paul to share the gospel with people in the city of Troas, but he didn't do it. Why? This is the first time that Paul mentions Titus' role in the complex relationship between he and the Corinthians. Titus was actually the one who delivered Paul's agonizing letter to the Corinthian church that we talked about last week. And Paul's plan was to meet Titus in Troas before returning to Macedonia as Paul did not want to return to the Corinthians until he heard Titus report about the Corinthians. So to the question at hand, upon arriving in Troas, the Lord opened a door of opportunity, as it said, for Paul to share the gospel. Some people were really ready to hear about Jesus and respond, but Paul didn't find Titus, which caused him to feel really restless in his spirit, and he asked himself, I'm sure, things like, were things going badly in Corinth? Why isn't he here yet? Maybe Titus got hurt. Unable to concentrate on his ministry, Paul left to return to Macedonia. He would later, however, return to Troas, and God would use him in a powerful way there. I would encourage you to read Acts 20, verses 5 to 11. Still, this was really unusual for Paul, who often refused to leave a place where people were receptive to the gospel, even at risk for his own life. He must have been deeply disturbed and heavily convicted by the Holy Spirit to leave behind the opportunity for new converts in Troas. Now, as a note, at this point, Paul suddenly breaks off the story of why he delayed so long in returning to Corinth, and he leaves it in a very tense moment, and he doesn't pick it up again until much later in this letter. In fact, not till chapter 7, verse 5. Now, in the next verse, Paul turns to a sudden exclamation of victory. Look with me. Verse 14, it reads, But thank God, Paul says, he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Here's the question. Why would Paul use this imagery of a procession and perfume with regards to our relationship with Christ? Paul declares right off the bat, thanks be to God. And he describes God's work as something many of his readers would have been familiar with, a Roman victory procession. This was a parade in which a victorious Roman general would march his soldiers and captured enemies through the streets in triumph. Paul compares that to what God does for believers in Christ. He leads us in a triumphal procession, making use of us as prisoners captured from the enemy, as it is, in a sense, in other words, now available to accomplish his purposes. In the Roman victory parades, incense was burned in celebration of the defeat of Rome's enemies and to honor their god Jupiter. In that way, people could both see and smell the evidence of a captured foe as it passed by. Paul describes God's use of his willing captives, Christians, in a similar way. He uses us to spread the fragrance of his knowledge everywhere we go. We serve his purpose of spreading the truth of the gospel down every street he leads us along. Next, let's look at verses 15 and 16. They read, Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, 
we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? Here's the question. In these verses, Paul again uses the image of fragrance and describes its effect on believers and unbelievers. What does he mean? And what does Paul mean when he asks, who is adequate for such a task as this? Well, let's take the first part of that question. These verses expand the analogy of the Roman processional incense burned to the god Jupiter. But Paul's Jewish readers, steeped in Old Testament language, would immediately recognize Paul's language as being similar to Leviticus 23.18, where the burnt offerings are said to be an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Unlike these settings, where physical smells were presented to God, or in the Roman case to Jupiter, Paul told the Corinthians that the holy lives of Christians are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. In addition to being something that pleases God, a holy life dedicated to God brings him glory. Through Christians, those being saved, the precious aroma of God's grace is spread throughout the world. But when Christians preach the gospel message, it is good news to some, in other words, life-giving perfume, but to those who are perishing, it is the dreadful smell of death and doom. Those who are being drawn by the Spirit immediately recognize the life-giving power of the message. But those who stubbornly refuse to believe smell something foul, the judgment of death that awaits them. In the last part of verse 16, Paul asks a question. Who is adequate for such a task as this? Well, we'll have to go to the next verse for the answer. So let's do that. Look at verse 17. It reads, You see, we are not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. So here's the question. In this verse, Paul answers the question he asked at the end of the previous verse, verse 16. Who does he say is qualified to represent Christ, and what is their motivation? The short answer is, only actual Christians are qualified to represent Christ. False teachers and fake Christians had moved in among the true believers in many places in Corinth. Paul describes some of them as hucksters who preach for personal profit, meaning those pretending to be spiritual are only doing it so they can profit from teaching about God. Now, it's obvious from 1 Corinthians that Paul did not object to preachers earning a living wage for their work in sharing the gospel. He had gone to great lengths to defend the right of the preachers to ask for money. Check out 1 Corinthians 9, 3-10. On the other hand, Paul himself passed up on that right. He strove to present the gospel free of charge in order to show his sincerity. And as we just read, Paul declares that he and his co-workers are not hucksters of God's word. Instead, they're honest men, sent out by God. They speak in Christ and they speak in the sight of God. Their message is trustworthy because it comes from God who sent them. Now, let's go over to chapter 3, starting with verse 1. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. And it reads this way. Are we beginning to praise ourselves again? Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on their behalf? Surely not. Here's the question. In this verse, Paul exposes another tactic being used by the false teachers. What is it, and why was it happening? In Paul's day, traveling preachers and evangelists introduced themselves with letters of recommendation from various churches. Paul had written letters of recommendation on behalf of Phoebe, check out Romans 16, 1 and 2, and Timothy, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 10 and 11. These letters helped Paul's trusted companions and friends find a welcome in various churches. 
Apparently, some false teachers had started using letters of recommendation to gain a speaking platform in the Corinthian church. These traveling hucksters had come to Corinth with these letters, perhaps authentic, perhaps forged, and were asking the Corinthians to recommend them to other churches. These letters helped them gain hospitality from members of other churches and an opportunity to speak, even to ask for reimbursement. Apparently, some of these false teachers had begun to criticize Paul's authority by subtly asking if he had presented any letters of recommendation. Paul was justifiably annoyed that he would have to explain his apostolic credentials to the church that he had founded. Next, let's look at verses 2 and 3. The only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Here's the question. In these verses, Paul continues to talk about a letter of recommendation, only it's not one of paper. What kind of letter is Paul referring to here? Paul insists he has an even better letter of recommendation, the Corinthian Christians themselves. The transformation in them from pagans to followers of Jesus is all the evidence he will ever need to show that his ministry as Christ's representative is the real thing. The Corinthians, above all, should be able to declare that Paul's ministry is valid. Otherwise, they would be saying that their own conversion to faith in Christ was not valid. Paul first points not to their hearts, but to his own. He has expressed his deep love for the Corinthians on multiple occasions. Here he says they have been written on the hearts of him and his co-workers in ministry. All who know Paul can read this letter describing his affection for the Corinthians. He also describes the transformation that is taking place among them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is not claiming that he's the one who made the Corinthian believers into Christians. The letter was written by Christ with the Holy Spirit of the living God instead of ink. And it was written into human hearts instead of stone tablets, which is a direct reference to the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God on stone. Paul's point is that Corinthians' faith is genuine. And since Paul is the one who brought the letter to them, they should see clearly that he is truly a genuine apostle sent by God. Next, let's look at verses 4 and 5. They read, We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we're qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. Here's the question. Was Paul being vain or confident in speaking these words? Paul didn't want to have anything to do with vain boasting. Yet he expressed his confidence and assurance in his own ministry, not because of his own eloquence or sophistication, but because God through Christ had commissioned him as an apostle on the Damascus road. Paul had asked who was competent or adequate for the task of preaching the good news. We just talked about this a few verses ago. Well, in this verse, Paul answered his own question. Only those who are called by God will have power and success. And as we answered before, only true Christians. This might have been a slight snub to Paul's opponents in Corinth. They had boasted of their own wisdom, their own eloquence, their own superior Jewish ancestry, and their letters of recommendation. In contrast, Paul refused to boast in himself. Instead, he boasted in Christ's strength, which had become evident through his weakness and the trials he had endured for the cause of Christ. And now, friends, we've reached that last verse for today, verse 6, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. It says, 
He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. Here's the question. In this closing verse, Paul talks about a new covenant and contrasts it with the old covenant. What's the difference? God had enabled Paul and his companions to be ministers of his new covenant. This is one of the two times that Paul uses the Greek words for new covenant. The other reference to the new covenant is Paul's quote of Jesus' words concerning the cup of the new covenant, 1 Corinthians 11:25. Most likely Paul was using the terminology of Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 33 in this passage. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of a new covenant when God would write his law on his people's hearts. The verse ends with a short adage, the old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the spirit gives life. The old covenant refers to the Old Testament scriptures, the summary of the law of Moses. Paul's letter to the Romans shows that Paul unequivocally denied that following the law can achieve salvation. Instead, the law only makes people conscious of their sin, the sin that ultimately leads to death. Trying to be saved by keeping Old Testament laws will end in death. Only by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ can a person receive eternal life through the Holy Spirit. No one but Jesus has ever fulfilled the law perfectly, so the whole world is condemned to death. Under the new way, eternal life comes from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives new life to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Well, folks, we've reached the end of today's study. I hope that this has been a time where you've been challenged and encouraged as we've talked about being ministers of the new covenant. Next time, we're going to be studying 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18, and we're going to talk about the glory of the new covenant. Thanks so much for being with me today. It's been a joy to be with you. Have an amazing rest of your day and week, and I'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.